so here we are with uh, Tyler Crumrine, the, the uh, creator of the game Single Unique Power, which we just played, and also several other games, uh, a, lot, a lot of different games. And actually, that's our first question is, um, could you maybe talk about some of the games, other games you've developed? I see on your uh, your your about section on the website, it said uh, over 50 books. So I'm very curious about sort of the range of games that you might have developed and worked on. Yeah. So um, like the introduction says, I'm Tyler Crumrine. I am the publisher and designer behind Possible Worlds Games. Um, but uh, Possible Worlds Games is me. Uh, it is a single member LLC uh, constructed to help make sure that I don't get screwed over uh, by the government for making games as my income. <laughs> um, but yeah, I'm very lucky to have come to tabletop role playing games from actually uh, an English background. Um, so I didn't formally study game design. I studied theater uh, and worked as a dramaturg for about a decade. A dramaturg is a lot to a play in development what an editor to is to a novel in development. So I was already thinking a lot about like, uh, you know, these literary artifacts that are like scripts for performance, you know, and tabletop role playing games are very similar in that, you know, it is a unique style of literature that isn't really complete until you, you know, have someone on the other end. Um, mm -hmm. So not that plays can't be enjoyed strictly read or that games can't be enjoyed strictly read, but there is like a, a special third thing uh, in the combination of like the reader experience and the, the literature. Uh, so I had been working in theater for about a decade when uh, the pandemic hit and really a lot of that momentum kind of stopped because uh, I was a full-time freelancer. I had a number of theaters that would be like, hey, you can count on us for like one show a year. Uh, and when the pandemic happened, a lot of places didn't really have a choice except to circle the wagons. You know, like if they were still doing projects, if they weren't just going dark, uh, they were like, all right, the people who are on salary, how can we justify their salary, make sure that they have work to do. And the people who are freelancers, like, oh, we don't really have anything for them right now. Um, so I had been a hobbyist game designer on the side um, and had been, you know, working on a few of my own projects, but also in being part of the indie space and like being active and playing and talking about games and joining discords. A lot of people knew me as like, oh, Tyler's the book editor who also will know what we mean when we say like 2D6. You know, a lot of the, like the vocabulary <laughs> yeah. stuff that like it's interesting that like things like copy editing, you know, or even things like con content and developmental editing, you know, role playing games have just as much of their own vocabulary of design as, you know, theater does or anything else. So I got my start in RPGs, editing and developing games and making sure that like, OK, from a like sentence structure uh, point, this makes sense. And from there, I started, um, you know, getting uh, more and more into my own design work that I was doing and sharing it with those peers. Uh, and so when uh, my first big game was Beak, Feather and Bone, uh, it was a project that I just kind of threw up on Kickstarter uh, because I had a lot of great friends and peers bullying me too. Uh, and I set it as like a zine quest project with a goal of a thousand dollars, uh, and it raised $20,000. And so suddenly it became, you know, my full-time job by default of, uh, fulfilling this game, you know, getting it, uh, into like retailers hands and such afterwards. Um, so once Beak, Feather and Bone was out there, uh, I was like, all right, this is kind of the best lead that I have on a new career path right now. Um, but I also got really surprised by taxes that year. So I was going to be like, if I'm going to make more, I'm going to make sure I do it right. And if I'm going to be like going to conventions and things, I want to make sure that, uh, with my second release, I don't just have two titles on the table. I want to make sure that I have like enough for people to pick and choose between. Uh, so that's where the idea came from my possible worlds box set. Uh, these were six games that I had been tooling around with to different degrees for a while uh, that I felt like kind of checked all of the boxes of my design sensibilities and also my design, like, 
you know, my uh, stylistic preferences. Like this game is very much my love letter to like shonen manga uh, and things like that. And I also was like, hey, I'm going to have a sci-fi game in there. I'm going to have, you know, a uh, a dating game in there. Like just different styles. They'll be like, all right, so hopefully there's something for everyone. But if someone were to play all six, ideally it would make sense that these were all by the same person. Uh, and a lot of what unifies those is something I call dollar store design. Uh, with my games, I don't want anyone to have to go and pick up something to play the game that they can't find at a dollar store uh, if it doesn't come with the game itself. Uh, just because I think that, like, you know, I love a D20, you know, a big fan of having a like a handful of dice that I can scatter over the table. But, you know, in terms of like lowercase a accessibility, game stores aren't always the most accessible space whether geographically or even just like vibes. Uh, and so if I was going to be asking people like, hey, here's a pick up and play game. You don't need to know RPGs. You don't need to be experienced with RPGs. I also didn't want them to have any like RPG equipment. So I was like, hey, if you have Yahtzee, you can play this game that requires six-sided die. Mm -hmm. Like if your family plays like poker every once in a while, you probably have a standard deck of cards on your hand. Um, so... That set of games got me up to seven. Um, and then I did an expansion for Beak, Feather, and Bone, got me up to eight. I've released a handful of small experiments on the side. Uh, I have a Guess Who styled game. I have a book of like adventure poems. Um, and as all of that has been happening, um, I've also been very lucky and grateful to be able to continue to do that kind of editorial work, that kind of development work. And do a lot of the things that I was doing as like a literary editor for, you know, plays or books of poetry just for RPGs now. So I work with World Champ Game Co. a good bit. Uh, Dinoberry Press, I've edited a number of their games. Um, Weird Age Games, I've done some uh, writing for their products. Uh, and I've also, you know, some of it is NDA'd, but I've been brought on as like a design consultant on a number of people who are like, hey, I have this new game concept. I would really love someone to kind of like throw things against the wall and see what sticks. Or, you know, board game companies that are like, hey, we're looking to have like a bit more of a narrative aspect to our games. We really like know the numbers sides of things and the manufacturing and that kind of stuff. But, like, let's talk about where there is room for improv uh, mm -hmm. in this game of ours. And so that's how you arrive at that, like, 50-plus projects. Realistically, for all of the books that I've worked on over my career, it's more like over 100 books total. Um, but uh, since kind of refocusing on RPGs, I've found that there is such a variety of games, projects, and... Uh, you know, kinds of assistance that they might need that I've been able to mostly just focus down on that and still feel like every job is something new and fresh and not like, well, okay, back into the grammar minds. <laughs> Brought up um, the, I think you called it the dollar store materials, which is so fun. And I was looking through all of the possible world games and I love that, um, you know, you always list the materials that you'll need on top of um, just the game itself. And with how you were speaking about role play games like vocabulary and this kind of ingrained knowledge that people who play a lot of games start to build up where you can look at a one page RPG and understand it really quick. Um, with how you aim to make all of these games accessible for players with varieties of experience levels, how do you take your brain that has all of this TTRPG experience and create something with the knowledge that someone who's reading it for the first time is going to get it? Is that something like a skill that you rely on in yourself or something you bring out to other people? How do you like, tackle that in game development? Some of that actually comes from my theater background. Mm -hmm. So a dramaturg, in addition to being like an editor, or sometimes like research assistant slash writing partner, a lot of times if you go to a play and there is a uh, a talkback, although I really hate that term, I would always lobby for them to call it a question answer session with the playwright, because mm -hmm. talkback, you always wind up with some old white dude who's like, I had a dog that reminded me of this play. So... But a lot of times when you are in a new play development, 
you know, process. A lot of a dramaturg, what they're bringing is kind of um, like a educated reader um, perspective to it of being able to put yourself in the shoes of someone who is seeing this play for the first time, you know, or who might not like have done all the research that the playwright did and being like, okay, this is something that we need to make sure that like we explain this. Uh, so some of it is like a skill that I've built over time of like never assuming that anyone knows anything. Like, I think it's safe to just like, anytime you have kind of specialized stuff, um, to make sure that you define you define it, uh, unless you know part of the artistic pro uh, purpose of the of something is like the alienation that comes from like okay there are going to be people that are on the in and on the out of this information. Um, in terms of role playing games, though, uh, some of it just comes from like uh, you know having to flex that muscle a lot. Uh, but also, I'm very intentional in how I playtest games. Um, my younger brother was a farmer for a long, long time. Uh, now he's a welder, but he doesn't own any weird dice. He doesn't, like, have any interest in, like, really owning any RPGs. But he's a really good, like, back porch storyteller. Mm -hmm. And so I know that I'm onto something when I create a game that, like, he is able to latch onto and be able to be like, all right, this is the spark to kind of like go into uh, kind of this storytelling mode. Um, I also play test a lot of my games with kids. Um, my nephews who are all like under 10, um, Single Unique Power is actually the game that like I recommend to parents the most as a game that is very easy to kind of just get silly with and, you know, play with people who just kind of want to come up with a bunch of superheroes. Um, but I'll also run my games frequently with middle schoolers. Uh, there's a local library here in uh, Millvale, Pennsylvania. It's where I live. It's just like technically not Pittsburgh. We're divided by a river. It's kind of annoying when elections come up. But uh, I volunteered at the library for a couple years um, just running games with the middle schoolers. And it gave a lot of really good feedback because they were all like they weren't old enough that they were too cool to engage. Mm -hmm. um, but also they were like young enough that they would not hold their tongues if they didn't think something was fun or if they didn't think something would work. Uh, so a lot of where that comes from is just making sure that I am playing these games with people who are not as entrenched in the hobby as I am. And sometimes that can take some effort, you know, to like organize public play tests or, you know, specifically like, you know, reach out and plan sessions with folks who like, hey, I know this isn't your usual bag, but like, trust me, I'll buy us pizza. It'll it'll <laughs> be fun. That kind of thing. Yeah, that's awesome. You're, I mean, we have so many questions here and you're already covering so many of them, just like well, kind of I, flowing into them naturally, great, which yeah. is awesome. <laughs> I also like uh, coming from theater, I, I try not to monologue too much on podcasts. So please like, <laughs> no, it's... Uh, interrupt me if you ever need to. But also, I so the reason why I'm no longer volunteering at the local library is because I've started teaching game design um, at Ooh. Carnegie Mellon University. Oh. I um like a intro to tabletop role-playing game design and the most fun thing That's about cool. that class is they have a game design major at cmu um through their like entertainment technology center but this is a like open to any major it is an introductory course so there are some people who took it because they're like i eat and breathe tabletop role-playing games i want to learn how to make them better and there were some people who took the class they're just like this sounded more interesting than pottery uh, <laughs> so even just in the way that i've been teaching game design a lot of it is kind of trying to stay aware that like hey there are some people here who are looking for professional development and there are some people here who are just looking for an interesting hobby yeah. um and keeping in mind that like okay uh it is just as valuable if this is something that enriches people's free time as if it is something that like becomes a side hustle or a main hustle for them down the line. Well, okay. Can I ask, I know you lead game development. I assume you do some game running. Yeah. I, I actually, often? uh, I used to play more, uh, just in that, like, 
you know, I'm I'm in my mid 30s. And what that means is I have a lot of friends who, you know, we had like ongoing campaigns and things like that. And now they're getting married. Now they're having kids. Now they are like moving up into higher positions in their jobs. And so, mm -hmm. you know, organizing like regular play uh, is tough. Uh, I'm going to be moving into a new apartment this year. And really one of my priorities is just like, I need a room that's good for like hosting games. Like mm -hmm. I need, I want this to be a house that I can just say like, all right, Wednesday night is game night. Like if two people come, we'll play a two player game. If six people come, we'll play a party game. Um, but I do like through my teaching um, and also just like if more often than not, if I'm playing a game, it's a one shot. Uh, that's part of why I designed them, um, just because I think there are a lot of lifestyle games out there. Um, and I would rather than try and like compete with the D and D's and the pathfinders of the world. I want to design games that like you can put on your shelf next to Pictionary and pull it off and play it when the vibe is right. You know, when it's like, we have 90 minutes, what can we play in 90 minutes? Um, so a lot of times I will play and I will run those kinds of games in part as research in part, just because like my partner and I really enjoy them. And so do our friends. Um, but through like this design course that I'm teaching, you also have to like, keep in mind that there are people taking this class who've never played a role-playing game before. Uh, and so part of like how I ease people into even just what a GM is, is modeling right. that for them. So they can, uh, you know, like start to wrap their brain around like, all right, what what does this mean for there to be a GM'd game versus a GM-less game? And what's more my style? Uh, I will say, though, I listen to a lot of RPG podcasts. Um, mostly uh, my big one is Friends of the Table. I've been oh. a huge Friends of the Table fan for a long time. Wow. Uh, really, it was them playing The Quiet Year that even got me on like kind of the the indie game um rabbit hole that i've been in uh and i'm very lucky that they've played most of my games at this point i've gotten to you know meet and hang out with austin really wonderful guy uh my problem is that i listen to all of the podcasts that i listen to at three times speed um and so when i go to gm i will start to like lose my breath and I have to remind myself <laughs> that, like, a normal GM does not talk this fast. You know, <laughs> this is just me listening to people run games at three times speed with, like, no pauses for ums or uhs. Yeah. And just deciding, like, well, I guess that's what good that's improv is like. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I run into that problem, too, because how else are you going to listen to that many podcasts? Yeah, um, there's so many good ones out there. You, you mentioned how it you kind of like the idea of it being next to normal board games, regular board games, you know, like Pictionary, that kind of stuff. I think that actually cranium. is what ended up cranium, yeah, cranium. cranium. <laughs> that is kind of what ended up happening um, when I, we first played this game. Anish and a couple other friends uh, and I were kind of sitting around uh, and we just saw single unique power as an option. And that we were like, oh, we could play a board game or we could do this. And that we yeah. had an excellent time doing that. Um so I guess kind of just moving into specific because we've we've answered so I cannot cannot uh, exaggerate how many questions we've gotten through already, which is awesome. <laughs> it's um, great. So specifically jumping into uh, single unique power, do you refer to it as SUP or SUP? Which which is it? I usually call it SUP. SUP. Um, big, yeah. Really, it is you know single unique power SUP. I, I think when I I. One of, uh, you know, um, I think that no one should ever feel any kind of obligation to, like, work out um, or engage in regular fitness or things like that, uh, especially now that we get into, like, toxic New Year resolution territory. Uh, <laughs> but so often, the first step of designing a game for me is I'll just be on a run or riding my bike or some other, like, hour-long idle activity and then a name for something will come to me. Um, and like single unique power abbreviated as SUP just like latched onto my brain at one point. And I was like, okay, I, I guess, I guess I want to do something with this because 
Uh, I like this acronym. Oh, so the name the name came first. Before... The name comes first on That's most nice. of my games. Really? Um, it's really, I think, uh, unless the game like or unless the name is a mechanic or is something that I'm pulling out from a piece of flavor text. Usually I like go kind of outside in where I have a name or a genre and then I try and think like, okay, what is, uh, what would be a complementary mechanic for this? It's another thing I, I teach. Um, I, I'm a big fan of games that have like mechanic as metaphor. Uh, so like your dreads of the world where it's like a Jenga tower represents the tension inherent in the game. Mm -hmm. Um, so a lot of times like I will be thinking like, all right, you know, what is kind of like at the heart of this and how do I build a mechanic around that? Um, although there are also plenty of times where like, you know, a mechanic will just lock itself into your brain and you'd be like, okay, uh, ice melting as a time mechanic would be a cool idea for a game. What thematically goes well with that? Like, is this a game about global warming? Is this a game about like, how much work Frosty can get done before he <laughs> goes to like puddle jail or whatever. Christmas um, shot. Yeah. Um, so it's, I would say it's probably like 70, 30 where the, the name, the concept comes to my brain and then I add mechanics versus the times where I have like a mechanic that I'm just like, Oh yeah, I really want to work this into something. But let but, me ask, since we're on the sub name, it might derail us, so please hold on to that, Anish. <laughs> do you Take ever, me on the ride. Do you ever get people with, they'll say, what's up? And you'll be like, nothing much. <laughs> I... Do you ever do that or no? No, I dream of that day. I, 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 it, it keeps me up at night, just waiting, <laughs> waiting for the right person. Um, but it's definitely how I've always thought of it. Just like, oh. What's up? What's up? <laughs> um, should, that's how we should have started. <laughs> yeah. yeah, what's up? What's up, Tyler? <laughs> <laughs> what is up? It, it really is nothing much. It is, it is, uh, <laughs> I, I'm, I'm very happy with the game. Um, and I, it's one of my favorites to play. Uh, but it is also like, it is a game that like, I don't hear as many like play reports you know, as I mm -hmm. do other people's games, because I think that it is a like, you know, it's it's kind of in that like session zero space of a lot of people play it, you know, to kind of generate the setting. And then like once they, you know, play like uh, uh, some other system with those characters, that's where the stories come from. That's where like it's, you know, uh, like, oh, this was a really great moment. And I think that there are some games where uh, the expectation is like, oh my gosh, this is going to be, you know, like this huge transformative experience for my players. And like, this is going to be like the best story they've ever told. Um, but I, I kind of like designing games that are like layup games that are, mm -hmm. you know, kind of one half of like, all right, Take this, get what you want out of it, and then, you know, be that much more prepared for the next thing. Can we give you our play report? Oh, yeah, sure. We... I mean, I'll listen to the podcast, too, but I'm I'm curious. <laughs> uh, it was just so fun because it started with one word, which was shell. Yeah, we did shell. That's a good one. Right? It completely, like, evocative, and <laughs> we turned it into, a, like, a power system where people are bonded to a shell that they randomly pick up. And depending on the quality of the shell, you get a better power. And so as we played and started creating characters, it was fascinating to see that natural villains would pop up and heroes would pop up based on their powers. Like, we, ha we created a character whose tragic backstory was that he wanted some great power. And so he went diving for shells to find the perfect shell. And then the power he got was the ability to breathe underwater. Yeah. So I like that is so much of like exactly what I hope for, for with this game. Um, I am a huge one piece stand. Like I have <laughs> I have I have a one piece tattoo. You know, it's it's yeah, it's like, wow, you know, uh, I'm a, a big fan. And also like other, you know, the single unique power trope is something that is really 
prominent in manga, but also like in other properties too. Like you've got X-Men, you've got um, like Nen in Hunter Hunter, you've got like My Hero Academia. There, there's so many examples of, um, you know, the like the different powers. And sometimes it's like, oh, this is something that you cultivated on your own. You know, it's like, uh, like this is a power that is an extension of like your personality or your backstory. But one of the things that I really love about One Piece is that it's just like luck of the draw. You yeah. bite a devil fruit and sometimes you get something really good and sometimes you get something really bad. Um, but you can only have one and it's kind of luck of the draw. And so part of what like I wanted single unique power to do and part of why I leave, you know, so much of the character elements until the end, like it starts with the power and then it be like goes to the weakness of the power. Then it goes to like, all right, let's start talking about the personality of the character. And then let's start talking about their backstory. And then you don't name them until the very end. Mm -hmm. And part of that is because I wanted to give people the opportunity to kind of like slowly settle into like, is this, you know, like a really significant power or is this like kind of a bad draw? Uh, one of my favorite examples from One Piece is uh, this guy, Katakuri, Charlotte Katakuri, part of the Big Mom Pirates. Love the Big Mom Pirates. Uh, but he has uh, mochi powers, like the, you know, the rice, like gummy mm -hmm. dessert. Yeah. And you hear like mochi powers and you think like, oh, my gosh, this is going to be, you know, some like gimmick one off like dessert power character. And he is like one of the strongest characters in the what? entire series because like he has like all these like stretching abilities he has all of these like shape-shifting abilities he's like they take the idea of like okay if the one word we have is mochi then how do we make this person still like formidable how do we make this person still like as this power as valuable power as anything else where you can have other people that like have, you know, really impressive sounding uh, powers, but they turn out to be pushovers. Uh, and this is a game where I wanted to let people have the freedom to kind of go in those different directions, but also the passing around the character sheets. I, I was hoping that in, there were some instances where someone would be like, Oh my gosh, I can't believe I got the toilet power. And then they pass <laughs> it to someone else. And they're like, well, this is like a water planet. And, you know, the ability to cause whirlpools would actually be super OP. That, it, see, that's kind of exactly how that character Anish mentioned came up. Because, like, uh, some, I'm, I'm looking at the, the sheet right now because we did it all digitally and have the different colors. Somebody, one person did the breathe underwater and the undoing, which was, I think, lead. Um, like, being near lead causes uh, them to lose that power. Yeah, and yeah, then they passed yeah. the card and that's when it got over to this person being a villain because I think that they must have passed it to someone and then that person was like, that's kind of not a great power compared to some of the other ones we've done. Maybe they're greedy, resentful, and a hoarder. Like, yeah. like, I, I think that collaboration is really what encourages such interesting characters like yeah. that. Which, um, speaking about the collaboration, we had a very funny situation arise in our rolling where... <laughs> Um, Michael, who had, couldn't be here today for scheduling, but he also loves One Piece. He's, he's <laughs> missing uh, out. Miss Michael it's right now. Honestly, if he were here, it would we would have spent a lot more time talking about One Piece. So <laughs> it's a little bit of a blessing that he's not here just so we can learn as much as we can about stuff. Yeah. Um, but he ended up with all the cards. It was like Anish kept passing back to Michael. Tori kept passing forward to Michael. Michael had like all of the cards. And we talked a lot um, as we were just reviewing it at the end about how you can't get um, particularly precious with any one card. Like it has to be kind of this collective uh, ownership over the characters. And it reminded me of the improv game where you do a story one word at a time and you can't you can't know what your next word is going to be until it gets to you. This is a long way to say, Did we saw a lot of roots from improv 
is that on purpose or is that a, like subliminal being in theater for so long? <laughs> it's definitely, uh, definitely on purpose. I think that, you know, any kind of role playing game, um, that is, and, and I understand that like everyone has different definitions of what is a role playing game. What is a storytelling game? What is an improv game, etc. I am very much of the opinion that something is whatever the author says it is like you are fully within your rights to say like, this is a bad role playing game, you know, on your scale of role playing games. Um, the same way that someone can say like, Hey, this is a prose poem. And someone would be like, I don't know, it just kind of reads like lazy fiction to me. Uh, you know, that's fine. You can have that op that opinion. But if mm -hmm. someone says it's a prose poem, then like that's that is. is the, you know, uh, how they are like presenting it and uh, how you should like, you know, judge it against that presentation. Mm -hmm. You can make an argument why you think it would be better categorized as something else. But, you know, someone can categorize something how they want. And I, I my thought on role playing games is, you know, uh, really abstracting the idea of what a role is, you know, so even a game um, that is entirely a world building game, like uh, I really enjoyed hearing you all play um, the ground itself. Uh, Everest is a friend. We've actually played role playing games together. Um, That's awesome. But, uh, you know, for a game like that, where you are frequently so zoomed out. I am of the opinion that embodying the role of an author or the mm. role of like, you know, a kind of like a uh, third person omniscient, what have yeah. you, um, still counts as a role. Uh, so with GMless games, um, I think that a lot of times those operate best when you lean into those collaborative, like improv skills, uh, because a lot of the role of a game master is just being like the improv champ. You know, mm -hmm. it is taking a lot of those like, you know, it's a lot of the same kind of games. It's a lot of the same. Yes. And it's just a lot more pressure on one person, you know, to play all the NPCs to, you know, kind of react to everything uh, to present, you know, the game of a scene or, you know, the impetus that other people are reacting to for it to come back to them. And so in order for a game to function well without that GM, without that, like, you know, improv crown being given to one person, uh, you have to find ways to kind of distribute it. Uh, and so passing around the cards and having like specific times of like, okay, this is your time for contribution. This is your time for contribution um, is part of that. But it's also why I include specifically in the rules, like, it is always okay and encouraged to ask for other people's input. Yeah. You know, you have the final say, but I also never want someone to feel like, oh, I hate improv. I hate, you know, doing this. Like mm -hmm. I get stage fright and them and the rules say like, well, no asking for help. It's sink or swim. You got to learn. Um, <laughs> and it's also like, I think that this game, if I were to kind of put it within a GM, lineage other than GMless, I would say it's almost like a floating GM. Uh, those are games where the role of the GM is kind of passed around the table. Mm -hmm. So no one person is ever expected to be like the narrator for the entire game. Instead, that role kind of gets evenly distributed. And so having a card in front of you is almost just like a method of saying like, all right, it's your turn to be the decision maker. It's your turn to have a little bit more creative agency over this world. What are you going to do with it? And the fact, like, I'm so, I really like the times when, you know, like random chance leads to someone like having all the cards in front of them or like mm -hmm. having a little bit of extra pressure because like there's no reason the rest of the table can't help bail them out or like help come up with ideas. But it is also like, you know, those are the stories that come out of a game like this. It is less the like, oh my gosh, I can't believe like so-and-so kissed this NPC. And it is more like, <laughs> oh my gosh, I can't believe that like this person basically wrote like the entirety of chapters like three, four, and five before everyone else got to have input. Um, so I, I've, I'm pretty sure I mentioned in the book, I, I, I know because like, I, I know that I do because I tweeted at them and they responded. But this is, uh, this game is also heavily inspired by the game uh, left, right, center. Um, it is like a very small, simple game. You can get it at most places for like five, ten bucks. But it's just, 
I think it comes with three custom dice, and there's an L, an R, a C, and dots on them. And basically, and you have like then a bunch of poker chips. And the idea of the game is, is you roll the dice and it tells you to pass the chip to the left, the right, or put it in the center of the pot. Uh, and the dots are just kind of like, okay, you know, you're safe. Don't do anything. Um, with the idea being that like the last person to put something into the center gets the pot. And so my family played it with quarters growing up. We'd be like, okay. Everyone starts with like $2 in front of them and you're passing the quarters to the left and right. And then like it goes into the center and whoever gets it, like, you know, if there are five people playing, maybe they get 10 bucks. That That's fun. Uh, but there were always those fun moments when like Uncle Billy would have all the quarters in front of them and just be rolling dice over and over. And there would be <laughs> people to the left and right of him without any quarters being like, come on, give me, get a right, get a right, get a left, get a left. And I think that that is like, that is a, a gameplay feature, in my opinion, not a glitch yeah. of like having the tension of being like, I have a really great idea. I hope it comes to me. <laughs> when you do listen to the episode, that tension will be apparent. Yes. <laughs> One thousand percent. We keep t talking about theater. So I have to ask this question. It's no secret that for people who love the arts and theater, especially the transition to RPGs is pretty natural especially for you a new play dramaturg somebody whose literal literal job is to pretty much collaboratively explore the possibilities of a new possible world that being said when you made the change to go into designing rpgs is there something that your theater background did not at all prepare you for um uh that's a good question i mean i think one of the things that it didn't prepare me for, well, uh, maybe I was a little bit, is just how set in their ways some people are, you know? Mm -hmm. um, I, I think that there's definitely, like, a mountain to climb in terms of, like, you know, it's, it's the reason why you have things like um, OSR games, you know? People who are like, I do not like the design trends that are happening right now. I want to go back to these other things. Um, or, you know, I, I, you could compare like D&D &D, uh, only people to like Shakespeare purists. Of like, all right, you know, this is the only good stuff. Like, I'm not interested in anything else. Um, and so as like I worked in um, experimental theater, my specialty was actually impossible theater. Um, I ran a play publishing company that I founded called Plays in Verse that was specifically focusing on modern verse theater and publishing them like poetry books, uh, regardless of production records, uh, kind of as a challenge to designers to be like, hey, this is good literature. You know, if you want to put this on stage, you don't have to do everything to the letter, but you're going to have to get creative in interpreting it because this is not an acting edition that has been like, you know, performed hundreds of times before you get your hands on it. Like, it's going to ask more of you. And so when I design games, like, I get excited about playing games that do things that I have never seen before. Uh, I have the same way that I would get excited about working on or seeing plays that really did things that I hadn't done before, in part because, like, I've just consumed so much theater over the course of my lifetime. And now, mm -hmm. as like a games professional, I've played and bought so many games that it's almost like, you know, it's I, I feel the same way about indie music, some even. Like I I a lot of pop songs don't do anything for me, but like the first time I heard Joanna Newsom. I was like, hell yeah, that voice is weird as hell. This is, <laughs> this is great. Like, I there is something here. Or like, you know, the really earnest singers that like, maybe they aren't perfectly on key, but I'm like, okay, you're doing something different. Like, I can hear the emotion on, in this. Mm -hmm. um, it was a bit of like a shock to me when, you know, the thing that really got me excited about RPGs was how much of a variety there was that I wasn't aware of. You know, listening to podcasts like this one that, you know, exposed me to new and different games. Like, that's like, hey, it's not all just D&D. &D. Um, and so the first time I went to a convention, and uh, it was actually, this is very relevant, it was Single Unique Power. Um, there was uh, a young guy, probably high school aged, uh, 
uh, came up to my booth and was browsing through the stuff. And I gave him like the, you know, the quick rundown pitch. Um, and his dad was there with him. And he was like, dad, like, look at this game. I really like it as you do these things. And he's like, oh, well, that's, that's interesting. He's like, it's not a, it's not an RPG though. And I, he was like, uh, uh, and he looked at me, he was like, are you like, why do you say this is an RPG? And I was like, well, you know, like I, you're playing this role, you're doing this storytelling. He's like, yeah, but you're just creating characters. Like you're not you're not like playing as these characters. I'm like, yeah, no, it's more of like kind of a storytelling thing. And the son was trying to say to like that, I don't care. Like, I like this idea. I want this. But he would just not let go of the fact that it was not a real RPG. Mm-hmm. And this year, that same group came back to my booth, like, and the son was super excited to be like, hey, what's new? And he looked to his dad and he's like, hey, remember these guys? We got stuff from them last year. And his dad was like, no. And just kept walking. Oh, so like there, like wow. it is there are some people that they have just decided that like, you know, that's not a real game. And so they just don't want to engage with it. Um, whereas like, you know, it is not hard to get a young person or someone who is like already into indie RPGs to give something a try. Uh, but it is a lot harder to say to someone like, hey, uh, this is completely different from what you know and love, but try it anyway. Uh, Because there are a lot of people that it's, you know, any kind of artistic medium, any kind of fandom, really. You know, you see the same thing with like Star Wars, etc. People will take any kind of like alternative to the thing that they love as a referendum on the thing Mm -hmm. that they love. They will say like, oh, this is a commentary on me. You are saying your thing is better than mine or your thing deserves more oxygen than mine. And like, no, it's just there's already a lot of your thing. Like, and frankly, like, I I do not want people to stop playing D&D. You know, I want Wizards of the Coast to stop shitty business practices. Mm-hmm. But no. I like have no interest in like breaking up playgroups or like, forcing people to change systems or like ending like stories or even just like having people learn new verbs you know it can be very hard especially like if it was tough enough for you to get onboarded to one thing you shouldn't have to feel a pressure to like hop to a new system every week um but it is it's you know there are different kinds of players out there and there are different kinds of consumers that reflect those players yeah, it's so interesting, especially with a game like SUP, where the barrier to entry is so low because it's so like accessible, where like you could have a long running D&D game night and then like one person doesn't show up or like one night you don't feel like playing and you could just pull out SUP and do uh, one game of that and then continue your your regular game next week. Um, yeah, as someone also with like social anxiety at times, I have a much easier time asking someone for the buy in of uh, that is equivalent to like watching a movie. Yeah. As opposed to like the buy-in that is equivalent of joining a rec sports league, you know, mm-hmm. like it's easier to say like, "Hey, let's play a pickup game of basketball." Than like, "All right, I'm putting a team together. There's going to be a tournament in three months, and we have to like show up to make sure that we hit these benchmarks, yeah. you know, to like be considered a real member of the league." Yeah. Well, the, um, since we're sort of getting to the end of our our time slot, I'll ask our last couple questions here um while we while we can uh basically just we wanted to ask at the end of the interview first of all you can if you've got anything that you're currently working on that you wanted to talk about or plug um but also uh if you have any game recommendations that you think we should check out on the podcast something we could add to our add to our list on our die that we roll we we'd love to hear your suggestions especially from your perspective so yeah um so i'll Start by talking about some of my current projects. I don't know when this episode will be coming out. Um, Yeah, late February, maybe. Hey, then there might be time. Uh, (laughs) So I uh, my next project is called The Details of Our Escape. Um, It is a collaborative project um, after like kind of two years of development uh, that is finally hitting Kickstarter in February. Uh, But I... um, 
created a residency, a digital residency for people who are creatives outside of the RPG industry, uh, people who are talented creators in their own right, and who I think, you know, one could contribute something to this space, but also that I think that more people in the RPG space would benefit from like being exposed to their work outside of it. Uh, so I worked with comics artist Linnea Sterk um, and author Renee Gladman um, on a project where basically I just funded um, a, a year-long residency for them where they passed pages back and forth uh, illustration to writing to illustration to writing and collaboratively made this like really interesting setting um, over the course of a year. And then the next year I took that and designed a game around it um, that like will use, uh, you know, really in step with the, you know, the visuals and the writing of the world. And so what we arrived at was this game called The Details of Our Escape that is a world building game that runs on dominoes where you are actually playing as like a caravan of over 2000 people and you are charting their path along this journey as they flee one place in search of something different. Uh, and you see how, what kinds of things they observe on their journey, what kind of uh, discoveries they make, trials they go through. Uh, and you also chart how many people uh, depart the caravan at each leg of the journey uh, to see like how, you know, and talk about like, all right, you know, what is worth seeking, what is good and what is good enough um, when you're trying to find something better for yourself and others. Uh, so really excited about that game. Uh, I'll be talking a lot more about it in February. Uh, if you go to possibleworldsgames.com, you can find all of my stuff, including a newsletter in case all social media ceases to exist at the drop of a hat. Could happen, um, honestly, at this point. <laughs> and then also there is a game that I've been developing for a while as well called Bad, Bad, Bad. Um, and it is a fan fiction game. Um, it is very much the polar opposite to my uh, like world building first style of game creation. Um, because part of what I've found is that, you know, as much as some people might like having an opportunity to say like, hey, you know, we don't have to learn Faerun. We can make our own setting that we all have equal buy-in for. That's really intimidating for some people. You know, even creating a character, coming up with a name for someone can be really mm -hmm. intimidating. So this is a game that instead just says like, hey, playing with action figures can be role-playing too. You know, we have a deck of characters. We have very simple resolution mechanics. And for the game, you are actually like going into a scrambled up fan fiction archive that is settings and characters contributed by each of the players. Um, and you just kind of smash them against each other, make them kiss and then like try and escape <laughs> back to your own world. Um, so I've been working with comics artist Kelly Kay on that for a while. Uh, and I run monthly play tests in a discord. Uh, that is something that I'm really committed to making sure Kelly doesn't have to crunch on this game. Uh, and it's eventually going to be a full 52 card deck uh, of characters. So as that process is happening, I'm just really, you know, honing it and sharpening it and uh, taking people's feedback seriously. So you can find that discord on my website as well. That's awesome. As Super far as recommended games, uh, it's hard to like keep it to a few. Huh. Uh, as many as you want. We got our list can be as long as what whatever <laughs> i am trying to see like what's within eyeshot right now <laughs> uh well i'll talk about the games that i taught in my um my class this semester as, as a way to kind of narrow it down as some interesting stuff um something that students really resonated with is uh solo games um and i think that solo game can be a bit a, a bit of a misnomer um, more often than not, uh, when my partner and I want to play a game, uh, we will pick out a solo game and she and I will just like talk through everything together. Um, so really all like a solo game is, is like a simulated GM, um, is a great way to think about it. Uh, so I shared with the class, um, the games Anamnesis, um, and also, uh, the Alone on a Journey suite of games by um, Sam Lee and Takuma Okada, respectively, uh, Alone Among the Stars, et cetera, um, and let folks kind of really like explore that space. Um, 
I saw that you all just played Lasers and Feelings recently. Great uh, rules-like game. Um, I am a sucker for kind of the vibes forward uh, game design that's been happening lately with games like Troika, uh, games like I Taught Electric Bastion Land um, was a lot of fun. Uh, just kind of games that it's like, okay, you know, your character is going to just be completely decided by a random roll of the dice and just like hyper specific character backgrounds and things like that. And kind of just like the, you know, if we're taking it back to improv, like being assigned a role and being like, okay, it's up to you how you embody this. Like you are like uh, a drowned fisherman come back to life. And like, how are you going to fit that into whatever's going on here? Um I also really love For the Queen, um, Alex Roberts' game, the uh, card-based storytelling game, I think is like a, a really good um, entry point for kind of GM-less type stuff and also statless role-playing. Uh, those are some big ones, but I don't know. that. Really, the thing that I recommend most is just playing as many like weird games as possible, mm -hmm. you know, uh, as many just like kind of trolling, uh, like <laughs> trawling, not trolling. Oh, trolling. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, although troll, go for it. Uh, like going through itch.io and like seeing like what's, what's the new kind of interesting stuff. Okay. Um, and uh, it's also always like, I think it's also worth kind of keeping in mind for podcasts, like, uh, you know, what games are best suited for remote mm. play? Um, mm -hmm. I think that one of the lessons that the pandemic taught me uh, was I include in all of my games now in the back, like kind of uh, suggestions or, um, you know, uh, different modifications you make can make for online play. And really, that has helped me design more capital A accessible games as well. Uh, like one of my games, Hounds, requires like the stacking of D6s into a tower. Um, and in like designing a um, remote alternative for that for when you're not all in the same room, like I kind of stumbled into a satisfying alternative for people who, you know, like dexterity you know, like hand tremors or something might make that game inaccessible for them or mm -hmm. even having like repeated like reaching onto the table and things like that. Um, so really like the best games to play on a podcast are the games that um, are aware they might be played on a podcast yeah. <laughs> uh, and that like aren't, you know, so hyper specific that it is going to like affect the review process and like mm -hmm. kind of the like you know, the experiencing a game on its own terms by trying to, like, take it from its, you know, possibly it's like playtested setting uh, and forcing it into something uh, remote. Yeah. Another thing that's kind of specific to our podcast is that I've sort of taken on the role of what we call a rules lawyer being like, I, I, I'm sometimes not actually playing the game. I'm stepping back and sort of helping walk through the rules a little bit. So for, for SUP, for example, we used your, uh, your remote play guidelines, but like I was there having each person individually text their, their sparks to me. And then I arranged them and like did the random number generation. So, uh, I know that that's not a normal experience that a lot of people would have because everyone's going to be wanting to play that game. But I think that that that's a way to also uh, see what an in-person game might look like too. Yeah, no, I, I totally, totally agree that like, it's, there is something that I kind of envy about the people who are like, here's my game that I am just going to play forever and ever. Amen. Uh, <laughs> you know, because the, the hardest thing of like, you know, really being into these shorter, smaller, more bite-sized games is that there are just a ton of them. Uh, and it can be hard to keep track. But uh, really, like, something else that I would recommend is just finding designers you enjoy and, like, getting to know their catalog of games. Um, this is not, like, a selfish plug to try and get people to buy more of my games, although I welcome it. Uh, but, like, I am a big fan of, like, uh, podcasts like Blank Check, 
where they go through a director's entire filmography right. and kind of chart like, oh, how have their interests changed? Like, how is this like how is this film an attempt at like doing better this thing that they kind of tried to do in this other game? So more than like individual games, there are designers like uh, World Champ Game Co. is a great example. All of Adam Voss's games, uh, Good Luck Press. All of their stuff is fantastic. Uh, Dino Berry Press, um, a lot of other Alfred Valley stuff. House of Valley is all very, very good. Uh, I I really like um, Aaron King and Maxwell Landers games, um, and they also have a podcast called RTFM. Read the fucking manual, uh, where they go and they read games and like talk about them so that people don't have to feel like. You know, there are all these games that they feel like they should have read at one point. Mm -hmm. But and I really like playing Aaron and Max's games in part because, like, you know, they are friends of mine. I've I've guested on that podcast. Um, I was on the episode that is by and large the most hated game they have uh, <laughs> <they've> read. <laughs> Just because like we kind of picked it out of a hat and it was it was yeah. a very strange kind of experiment. Uh, it was a really fun episode. It was a good episode. It's just like a bad game. Um, but, uh, <laughs> but it's really fun to like find, you know, personalities uh, that you can kind of get to know, like, OK, what kind of games does this person like? You know, mm -hmm. what like design vibes with them? What doesn't? And now anytime I play any of their games, like uh, one of Maxwell's games is uh, Himbos of Myth and Metal um, is like a really fantastic, like, commentary comedy it's a gender comedy uh written by a trans man um and it's just like really fun and really funny um and not like it is a game that is about gender without being about trauma it is about like taking awesome. joy uh in like um you know gendered expression and being messy and being like sexy and all those different kinds of things or uh aaron king's game uh patchwork world i think it's up to third edition is the most recent but it is a powered by the apocalypse game where there are just hundreds of moves um <laughs> and like your character is just kind of what moves do you have uh, a great move from it is parents were eaten by a whale and anytime <laughs> you roll like there's a chance of a whale attacking and anytime <laughs> a whale attacks there's a very small chance of finding your parents inside uh, but like aaron is someone who also comes from like a you know traditional literature background and mm -hmm. so when i read you know patchwork world it's almost like i'm enjoying a book of poems um so like getting to know people getting yeah. to know designers and like their interests outside of games like adam voss is in the band law dispute um so writes a lot of games that are music related and also is like a horror aficionado so a lot of their stuff is involved by uh influenced by you know vintage horror type stuff um same with uh will and uh is a like a trained jazz musician and you can see a lot of that kind of improv sensibility um mm -hmm. like that kind of like iterating on themes in their games uh and i i find that like as someone who you know thinks very holistically about games a lot of times i i feel like i enjoy a game the most when i like you know am able to appreciate like where it came from um and, but that's really more like a plug for you know just like any kind of hobby that like you're going to enjoy it the most if you just you know get involved and actually engage with yeah. creators well well in the vein of uh visiting creators like I, already from when we first played the game and after this conversation especially i think we definitely would be interested in, in playing one of your games again um i've i've specifically one that i've really got my eye on right now for us is scene thieves scene thieves, scene thieves i think <laughs> especially with our our theater background would be i think pretty perfect for us to play so if we were to play one of those we would love to have you back on again maybe because then maybe we could have a, a longer conversation about theater specifically oh, yeah. <laughs> we've no, got a lot no. of a lot of questions we didn't ask about theater because we wanted to focus on sub <laughs> oh yeah no i'm i'm happy to join y'all anytime and also just like uh you know, um, speaking of like creators and like uh, the labor that goes into like making something, uh, thank you all for the work that you're doing. Like as as an indie, um, I can 
like tell you from firsthand experience that like my numbers go up anytime someone plays a game on a podcast or on YouTube or talks about it on Twitter. Um, and like, this is my job. Like it, it mm -hmm. helps to pay my rent and I will never like not be appreciative of the people who like, yes, I, I'm, I hope, and I'm glad that you're having fun, but also like, there's a lot of work that goes into yeah. organizing play sessions, recording them, presenting them, like promoting them. Um, so from myself, you know, people like Everest, you know, any of the other designers whose work you play, uh, like, thank you for also just like, you know, uh, sharing your time and joy and like recommendations with the world. Oh, it's, it's so much fun. Thank you. Yeah. Um, I mean, th thank you for taking your time to to talk with us about it. We with this podcast, we sort of our, our goal is to get things from what we call every side of the table being whether it's players, GMs and writers, we, we want like anyone who's interested in the hobby to have as many perspectives as they can, uh, just to just to be familiar with games if they're interested in playing them. So um, yeah, it is, it is so awesome that you joined us for this and, uh, we, we, yeah, to... let's do it again soon. Yeah. Yep. That'd be awesome. Hey. Um, if, if there's anything else you'd like to plug or say, go ahead. Um, but other than that, thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Just, you so uh, hey everybody, please be cool <laughs> <laughs> in general. Words to live by. Yeah. <laughs> Well, maybe we'll see you at another table. <laughs> That's yeah. our little thing that we say. That's our closeout. <laughs>